The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm thinking of this as uh, maybe I'll do some teaching and as much uh, facilitation and listening. Uh, We're calling this a conversation, so that means I can't talk all the time. But I have to wind down because Patrice and I were at a brunch and it got going, including along the lines of what's going (laughs) to... So I need to back up from where that conversation went because most of us weren't there. Uh, Hopefully, uh, and have every reason to believe this will be just as enjoyable, though, without the good food. (laughs) I want to add one piece to Mark's intro, which I appreciate, that Ajahn Buddhadasa, one of the ways he was considered controversial, and there were many, was that he was a leading figure in Thai engaged Buddhism before, way before Thich Nhat Hanh and his friends came up with the word. Because this sort of thing was bubbling up throughout Asia and taking the flavors of each country, its needs, each society... And it's in a, this is an aside, but it's it's annoying to be honest to uh, find Western scholars who find this stuff and assume it's a Western influence. Mark's got a book on Ajahn Buddhadasa, which is actually horrible. It's full of every page is loaded with errors, uh, and. That's not what today's topic is, so I'll, I'll just use it as an example. And the big error is assuming anything that looks similar to what's happened in the West is a Western influence. And this is sad because it's a cultural imperialism. It's The Asians aren't smart enough or sensitive enough or... They don't care enough to do this on their own. And second, uh, a scholar of Buddhism should know something about dependent core rising, that the world's just not as simplistic as East and West. And plus, that's been debunked all over the place. So anyway, in ways that had some dialogue with Europe, European interest in Buddhism, but was primarily indigenous, that is, to Thailand. Ajahn Buddhadasa, throughout his life, had various perspectives that we would lump under socially engaged Buddhism. Uh, one was Dhammic socialism. That's not our topic, so I I just want to provide the frame that I was lucky I had cover. 
uh, the engagement Mark mentioned. Uh, at least at the monastery, nobody could get on my case that much, although some of the monks tried, because I could just say, well, what about the big guy? He's actually supporting me. And uh, so then they had to leave me alone, at least while he was alive. And by the time he died, I had enough credibility it, my my social stuff was tolerated because it doesn't fit the monastic stereotype, which is one of the problems with the monastic stereotype, in my uh, not sufficiently humble opinion. So with all that, let's uh, move into today's uh, explorations. had the opportunity last night to do some brainstorming with Mark, and we came up with a couple things. And so I'm conceiving of a two-part conversation dealing with two important themes in Buddhist, especially Theravada and early Buddhist teaching. And I think they'll link up pretty well, but I'm not sure how I'll handle the transition. And for each of these, I'd like to say some things, which is the teaching piece, and then uh, shift to a question for conversation. And we'll see how you respond to the question. Uh, hopefully they'll be meaningful for you and a good conversation will ensue. If it turns out the questions are real duds, just let me know and we'll come up with a, another question. And I should preface this by saying, asking the right questions is often more important than answering the questions. And answering the wrong questions, as the Buddha frequently pointed out, can often trap us in a dead end, which conveniently is a nice segue into the first topic, which will center around ignorance. I'd like to begin this by trying to sketch the context of the early years of the Buddha's ministry, if we can call it that, as well as the years of what is called the noble quest, i.e. his quest from when he left the confines of family and being groomed to be the next chief of the local tribal federation that his family was a member of, 
and the six years be leading or culminating in the awakening. A big part of that context which he actively engaged with in this is portrayed throughout the early Buddhist discourses was this was a period of economic and social change. And in the Pali suttas, this shows up as also a time of spiritual change and debate. A lot of debate was going on. The areas where the Buddha lived and where he taught, there were numerous groups of wandering, let's call them spiritual seekers. It's sometimes they went by different title names, but a broad label is the Samana movement. You'll see this word translated as recluses, which I don't think is uh, so helpful. The Samanas were basically an eclectic uh, movement, relatively new, a century or two at the most, that was no longer buying into the inherited Vedic system, nor the established Brahmin priesthood. So this was much like many of us who don't fit in with, I grew up Protestant, those who might have grown up Catholic or Jewish or, or in many cases, secular atheist. Uh, people who didn't find uh, their answers met very well in the established religion. And they were out doing all kinds of stuff, some of it a kind of wacky, real hardcore asceticism. Others were, um, in Pali, they're called eel wigglers because their strategy was basically to take, well, you could say that or you could say this and, and just just be kind of mamby-pamby, not take a position on anything. The Buddha didn't think this was the way to go. This was the milieu in the Buddha's time. And there was the inherited priestly Brahmanic class that had wrote answers to things. And yet at the same time, there was the very creative religious philosophy that was being written down in the Upanishads, both before the Buddha's lifetime and continuing after. So in this, in the background, is the official religion, such as the Upanishadic teachings, and this very lively, often contentious ferment of the Samana movement. And the Buddha regularly had contact with this and to some extent was part of it. But it was so eclectic and varied. 
people who were doing dog vow. Their spiritual practice was to do everything they could to imitate a dog. This is in Sutta, and then there's the cow ascetics, and a famous one is Bahia, the birch bark ascetic, who was a tree worshiper, it seems. Some of those might appeal to us more than others. So anyway, I must apologize. I'm really into this history stuff now. I'm going to try to get to the... So within this, there were all these people claiming they had the answer, they knew the way. And part of this story that's uh, well known is the Buddha had lived with two meditation teachers, or actually one teacher and another teacher's son. His father, Rama, had died, and Ramaputta, the son, Puta means son, was carrying on his father's teaching. And the Buddha mastered that and did not find the answer to his question. He already knew kind of the philosophical Upanishadic, the Vedic answers. Those didn't work. And then he tried the hardcore asceticism. That didn't work. So he reached this period, this stage, probably a matter of months before his awakening. He already had in his background a great deal of intelligence, access to the best learning probably of his time. He was an extremely strong meditator, and he'd pushed asceticism to the limit of almost killing himself. So he wasn't brand new. And in spite of all that, he reached the following conclusion. This is as close to an exact quote as I can remember. Beings or beings of this world are enmeshed in the suffering of birth, aging, illness, and death and seek an escape the word escape is an accurate translation of the Pali word, seek an escape from birth, aging, illness, and death. But because nobody knows the escape from birth, aging, illness, and death, nobody is able to escape birth, aging, and illness, and death. So this is his kind of summation And this discourse seems to have come from the end of his life, looking back at just immediately before the awakening. And he's saying, none of that is an answer to the question of how do we escape from birth, aging, illness, and death? Now, for the Upanishads and a number of people, that means how does the Atman, how does the self that the Upanishads had posited is what we really are. By the way, that idea is only a century or two old at that time. 
It's not as ancient as sometimes it's claimed to be. So some people framed it, how does the Atman get free of birth, aging, illness, and death? And the Buddha is saying, nobody knows. What Buddhists tend to overlook is he's saying he didn't know either. He had found out what, in his opinion, didn't work. And what it seems to me this is saying is, and he spoke of ignorance in a broad sense, avicca, not knowing, and he's copying here to, I don't know either. Buddhists tend to gloss over this because we've done a lot of hagiography. Traditional Buddhism portrays the infant Buddha as practically enlightened. We forget. No. And here he's saying, I at least in my reading, nobody knows the escape from birth, aging, illness, and death. So I, I want to emphasize this point that not long before the Buddha's awakening was this pretty blanket acceptance of ignorance. It doesn't mean he didn't have any understanding. He knew uh, quite a bit about meditation technique and uh, asceticism, but he didn't have the answer to his question that started the noble quest which is the end of dukkha. What is the way out of the suffering of birth, aging, illness, and death? Which was, at that time, I, as far as I know, a standard way to phrase the question. In later Buddhist teaching, that gets fleshed out, such as in the, uh, what's believed to be the first sermon. <clears throat> So what did he do? And this is uh, beginning to be a lead-in for a question I'd like to ask of all of you. In accepting the blanket ignorance, not total ignorance, but ignorance in terms of what for the Buddha to be the bodhisattva, not knowing what for him was the big question. And I think uh, something brilliant followed. One, he did not come up with a theoretical answer. He did not decide he knew and then pose an answer. Instead, he shifted the question. And to me, this is what really gave rise to Buddhism. So I think it's crucial. He shifted the question for what is the escape to an inquiry in what does the suffering of birth, aging, illness, and death depend on? And 
this, the rest of the sutta frames that in terms of the standard dependent co-origination teaching, which I'm not going to go into here. But he shifted it to an investigation of, okay, here is this spiritual dilemma as he understood it, the suffering of birth, aging, illness, and death. What does that depend on? And he came up with a response. It's not clear how provisional that was because it's been passed down to us in a formula. And formulas don't convey how provisional it was. But there's hints in that he didn't stop with the first response. He then turned that into a question. On what does that depend? got a response on what does that depend, on what does that depend, on what does that depend. I'm not going to turn this into a dependent co-rising session, so I'm not going to fill in those that's and this's, but what I want to wrap up this, this narrative with is recognizing the crucial ignorance in play the Buddha investigated through questions that did not settle for the first answer or even the second, third, or fourth answer. And somewhere in this process, the awakening occurred, is how I read it. There are many terms in early Buddhism for investigation, examination, scrutiny, reflection, inquiry. Probably the best known one which works for today is Yoniso Manasikara. You'll see it translated as wise reflection, also systematic reflection. Personally, I think those are both pretty good. I like to combine them. Uh, Wise, systematic reflection. Literally, manasikara. Kara is the same root as karma. So it's an activity. Manas is mind or intellect, though maybe not with the same connotations as those English words. In Thai, they speak of manasikara as acting upon in the mind, turning over, reflecting. It doesn't specify logical, reflective, inductive, deductive, but an active mental inquiry into something. Yoniso means in terms of source. Yoni means where things come from. And so to examine, investigate, reflect in terms of sources. And you can expand that to their causes and conditions, processes, and 
consequences which become causes and conditions, and so on. This is fundamental to the Buddha's teaching. So let's do some uh, collective yoniso manasikara with one last piece of comment I want to add. The word ignorance, avichak, has two levels. This is Ajahn Buddhadasa's phrasing. Avichak can simply mean not knowing, the absence of true, effective knowledge. In Buddhism, knowledge that matters is basically pragmatic. Knowledge about the path, how to practice, and so on. Guided by four noble truths. Avicca also can mean wrong knowing. That one is more an absence, but there's a kind of knowing that is false, leads us into dead ends, keeps us trapped or stuck. This is worth keeping in mind. It seems to me wiser to admit not knowing than to dig in our heels with wrong knowing, which is a phenomenon I, I would hope we all recognize both in society around us and in ourselves. For me, it's scary to admit I don't know. Part of that goes to family of origin. Part of it is, I think, the competitiveness of the school system. And I succeeded in that system pretty well. That meant I had to know stuff even if the stuff didn't matter or I could forget it sooner or later. So for me personally to admit, I don't know, there's, I don't know about each of you, but for me that there can be an emotional need to know. And, and that was reinforced by becoming a monk and teaching, even when I'm careful about it, and I'm not always, there are people who seem to want to take me as an authority, which is real dicey business. When we seek authorities to tell us to maintain an illusion that we know because somebody's got the credentials, or he was a monk, he must know, or whatever the rationale is. And so I've found myself indulging in wrong knowing to avoid admitting I don't know. There was a, a book written by one of the um, 
big supporters of homeschooling. His last name was Holt. And the book is, I think, Fear of Failure. He was a master school teacher, award-winning, and he and a buddy sat in each other's classrooms and observed and then would give feedback. And it sunk in with them that the most influential thing in a classroom was fear. Children being laughed at, teachers doing an unconscious power thing with kids, and I'm already going on too many tangents here, but that can be strong in some of us. It has been in me. That to not know is failure. There's something wrong with me. I'm not smart. I'm not good enough. So it's a challenge to admit, yeah, really, I don't know. And that frees me, I feel, of getting stuck in opinions. You know, making an opinion so I seem to know. Or grabbing on a theory or a belief that I don't really know. Including Buddha's teachings. Since I brought that up, I should say, there's space to provisionally work with a teaching and say, you know, I don't know 100%, but this really looks like there's stuff to work with. Especially it's pragmatic, it gives me important suggestions and clues about how to live my life and freedom to test it. That to me is fine because... We're not claiming to know. We're, we're simply saying, this is the best I've found, and I'm going to in- sincerely engage. Although some people want to be convinced first. How can you convince me in advance that 100% this is true? Boom, spiritual practice is if with that, you've got to convince me attitude. Anyway, so that's some setup for a question about ignorance, which given our current situation, it's a little like the Buddha's time, There's so much knowledge and opinions. We've got the internet. We can just be bombarded with stuff that is, you know, I don't want to say it's not knowledge. There's some very useful knowledge. But everything has got a counter-argument. People who disagree... So in the midst of all this knowing and pseudo-knowing and opinionatedness and plethora of theory, how do we find our way? So I offer this question concerning our lived experience. 
what in early Buddhism is called world. In the early teachings, world means our lived experience. What do we not really know? I offer that question just to see and this could proceed with snippets, each of us looking inside and being willing to admit, well, I don't really know this and this and this. This is uh, the question I invite you all to take up. So I'm not talking theoretical knowledge. I'm talking about bringing it back to our own lived experience. What do we not really know? We might have some ideas we're trying out, but what do we not really know? We'll just circle the microphone, and when it comes to you, either say something or pass the mic. Yeah, as a living creature, there's the stuff. That's a way to summarize. You see things, you hear things, taste, touch, feel. You have emotions, thoughts. That's what I mean by lived experience. So your your world. I'm I'm not asking you to talk so much about more abstract worlds. But what for you is tangible lived world or experience? Otherwise, we get into a lot of abstraction. Well, I'm, well, I'm Gabe. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I'm not sure how to answer it. Um, but what was coming to mind, I think there's a lot that I don't know, but just thinking about it in a Buddhist framework in terms of what's relevant and in terms of my own experience, what's really relevant of suffering and the end of suffering, that's what I don't know. I don't know how to free this heart from suffering. So that's what I have to share. I'm Cosmo. Um, Yeah, it's very interesting question. I definitely agree that there's a lot of knowledge that I do not know. I do not, I think part of this for me where it's resonating is this kind of, um, I, I don't think I have a phobia of admitting I don't know something. I feel like the mystery (laughs) of um, 
I don't know, there's an element of mystery. So for me, there's this kind of um, acceptance with not knowing um, that comes along with that. So it's kind of a reframing for me. Um, yeah, I, I guess when it comes to like picking the finite thing or making a list of what I don't know, um, my mind right now is kind of trying to make a constellation of like, oh, that, 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 that. But it's right you now. You pick one? Pick one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is this better? Great. Great. I didn't know that this wasn't picking up my voice. I guess, like, that's real. <laughs> that's something legitimate. <laughs> Hi, my name is Tamata. Can you hear me? Is that all right? Um, so, I'm not sure this is relevant, but I was thinking more um, not just within myself, but outside of myself as a part of a community, as a part of many different types of communities and relationships and interactions. I feel like what I don't know is what other people are thinking and feeling. And um, I feel like when creating a community, that's part of what we need to discover. Um, if we want to have an inclusive community, how do we accommodate those people who may not feel included? And the only way to know that is to not assume and to ask but what we end up doing, myself included, is uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about what is that person thinking or feeling and trying to guess and um, trying to act accordingly. And these assumptions can lead to more often unskillful behaviors than skillful behaviors. Um, so I'd, I feel like that not knowing what other people are thinking and feeling is... Um, impacts my life on a regular basis. Um, well, I don't even know what I don't know. I think what I, what I don't know is so vast. But I'm kind of curious about that about not knowing what I don't know. Um, the easiest ones to name things that I don't know because I think about it a lot is when and how I'm going to die and when and how my beloveds will die and then it just extend to everyone um, and the other thing I, I I know I don't know is outcome of anything my name is Corey I, uh, I was thinking about intellectual knowledge and I don't know if Thinking about the like the academic perspective or the um, you know from the academic perspective like learning 
kind of a language system or learning a structure and kind of being conditioned to that structure and not being able to um, ever get beyond that after that point. And, and so I'm wondering, or I don't know if um, learning to communicate on that level or if intellectual knowledge is useful or um, you know if it could be used for good or if it's a, a hindrance. My name is Jesse, and I think very visually. I often relate to people in my life in analogies or metaphors and. As you were talking, it occurred to me that, at least for me anyway, the way I interpret this is that to not know leaves open the chance for growth. Because as soon as we think we know, we stop pursuing. We stop allowing for the chance of something new to come into us or a new realization. And I'll just read my little note here. It's basically that. But um, life and growth is dependent on accepting, not knowing, and then pursuing and learning the balance of living individually independent of other people. So a lot of times we want to assume we are part of this group or part of that group, and we assume we know what these people are thinking or what those people are thinking. And it's a very dangerous, divisive thing in our world because just look at geopolitical politics right now we we have all sorts of people who are so convinced they know these people are doing this and those people are doing that and as soon as we think we know something we stop asking questions we stop reaching out we stop we stop growing that's how i feel or interpret it anyway i guess i come at come at this from a um the point that I can't really see anything that I do know. <laughs> um, and there are probably like others points, specific points of the sort of the compass of not knowing related to anxiety or things. I don't know if the practice is going to sustain me in the process of dying, which I think about. I don't know if I have financial resources to... Um, support myself through the rest of my life um, and I, I don't know whether efforts to um, support practice in others is actually beneficial to them really <laughs> um, and um, I don't know if I'm going to get over or get through addictions to comfort that I feel that um, uh, strongly pulled to at points in my life. Um, uh, yeah. My name is Steve. My name is Peggy. Um, I don't know how to use all of the gifts that have been given to me to the fullest of my capability for the time that I have to give. And it pisses me off sometimes. And um, 
That's it. My name is Mady. I don't know what other people's experiences are. And I guess part of... Talk about being open to then learning more. But it can also maybe shut me down some too and make me more um, reluctant to even reach out and and um, explore that. But I, I can know some of my experience, but I don't know what anyone else's experience is. The more I think about it, the more, <laughs> and not confused, but uh, silent my mind becomes. <laughs> it's good meditation technique. <laughs> But when you when you first spoke, you know, it said about not knowing what other people, where they're coming from, or who they are, or what their experience is. Yeah, I, I think that's. I've seen that. Um, the absence of knowing. I'm not sure if I admit that very often, or to myself even. Um, but I sense that that's probably true. That I have a sense but that that sense may or may not have any relationship to what that person's experience is. And then and then it occurred to me that that's probably true for me too. Like I have a sense of what my experience is, but it may not actually be what my experience is. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. I'm Jay. I'm reminded almost immediately of what one of my sons said when he was about five. He said, I know you call me Eric, but what is my real name? It's kind of a probing idea that there might be something more real than the name that we have. I think of myself and at this age of each day is a treasure, as you've heard many times, but it it can truly be. And the fact that I think the aging process is a very... uh, um, It can be a rough road, I think, for many, many people, and uh, I don't know how we prepare for that, but certainly don't know that route. But it is a journey... Also, being alive can be uh, exciting and um, takes a bit of courage. And so those are some of my thoughts on what I don't know. I could go on for a long time on what I don't know. And the first thought I had was, you know, why why am I even here? But that's a little ethereal, so I'll put that aside. My name is Meredith, and um, <clears throat> I thought you were going to ask the first question about um, illness, um, birth, illness, aging, and death, and what it depends upon. And I thought that's a that's pretty interesting, but this one's gotten a little harder. Um, what first came to me is what I don't know. In many ways, is what I do know. 
what I don't know is what I what I kind of missed along the way, things I thought I knew. And again, you know, the, it's thinking about how much I don't know all these things that I've learned and what do what don't I know about them. So it's a kind of a probing question for me. Um, not knowing things has always been kind of a challenge in my life. I was pretty slow in learning. I didn't make it through first grade. I had to repeat first grade. And so that feeling of I don't know very much and I'm kind of a failure and um, made me work extra hard to learn, but I never knew if I really learned it or if I just had to know certain things in order to get by and then holding very tightly to some ideas. And so one thing I don't know is in a way, um, what I do know. I'm Patrice. And um, what seems to be up for me in what I don't know is that many days um, I read the New York Times um, read the New Yorker. I just feel that throughout the day, I kind of immerse myself in just unspeakable tragedies and injustice. I mean, like the, you know, the theology of sexual slavery in ISIS. Uh, it just things that just break my heart, and I just feel all this anguish when I read about this and um, don't feel that I have any adequate way to communicate that or to be effective. And um, sometimes I just have this image of all these streams of information feeding into this lake that's my consciousness and a lot of them have just all these toxic elements in them and I also feel this real obligation um, to invite them in to really know about this but it just feels like this conundrum and it's not that my life is unhappy because it's not but there's always this level of of anguish um reading uh tahanisi coats between the world and me i mean that has just seared me and i feel that i can't look at things the same way and i feel that i have no adequate way to communicate this and i don't know what i should be communicating i don't know what i should be communicating but i feel that i'm with people you know my family my sister-in-laws and that this doesn't arise when this is right under the surface for me all the time. And um, I just don't know how to be skillful about this at all. And I just feel um, some confusion about that. And would it be better not to know these things and all of my training 
for all my life said, no, that it's really important to know these things. It's really, really important to take all this in. But then I'm not sure what to do with it. I don't need that. <laughs> um, let me add one of mine related to those who said not knowing what others think and feel. I share that, and then for me, that means I don't know what others need, uh, which is related to my desire to help or my uh, obsession with (laughs) trying to fix things (laughs) or a mental habit, but I don't... I don't know what others need. Would anybody like to say more about what you, some things we don't really know? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> sure. When when I thought of this question this morning, I was kind of thinking, oh, well, we could all just go boom, 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 and there'd be this long list that would just rattle off. It might take some time to compile the list, but I was thinking in that terms, which doesn't seem to be quite how it was taken. Or there's a bit of reluctance. Um, So I want to check, is it this is a really hard question? If so, how? How is it so hard? Or is it inside? There's this, well, I don't know that, I don't know that, but we don't want to go there. Or is it shyness in a group? Any, any observations? Do we fear the unknown? You could frame it that way, that's one possibility. Is that true of you? At times, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I have to think about it a bit, but I don't think that could be true at times. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm making a guess, because like, I don't really know what you're all thinking and feeling, but I'm sensing there's a kind of something going on around this question. It could be it's just not an interesting question, but it it seems that's not how you're taking it. Um, 
when I start thinking about what I don't know, it's just mind-boggling. I, I, you know, like Mark said, it just kind of mind. Mind is not used to thinking about what it doesn't know, so it it kind of shuts down, and and so then the mind in a hurry came up with a thought that says, "I just don't know anything," and I realize that's a kind of knowing that I don't trust. It's not very authentic because I think the the mind was doing problem solving about this kind of a mind numbing awareness. How little I know. Uh, I think that was, and so. But then I wanted to please you and come up with an answer. So I thought about something I think about all the time, which is something I for sure I don't know. That was that was my thing. Yeah, I definitely think that there's this uh, interesting thing with the question that kind of, for my brain, has this like really super specific, like pinpointed something as specific as I didn't know the speaker wasn't on to probing questions that are very, I think, much part of a daily practice of (laughs) thinking about the things that are as expansive as am I really experiencing a person in the moment? Am I like, are those, is that experience really known to me or is that unknown? Um, And so I think there is this kind of switching back and forth between this immediate yes or no understanding kind of thing in this other um, list, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I think maybe the, intention to have a list is, uh, yeah, I, I don't know necessarily, um, yeah, how much importance I place on knowing or what is the importance of knowing or are there differences between knowing and understanding, knowing and sharing, knowing and being with. Um, so I think for me, like knowing is a word that has a lot of possibilities to it, but also for me, not necessarily something that I can really talk about. (laughs) I didn't get the, sorry, uh, the sense that the question was that you wanted a list of all the minutiae that we do not know because obviously there's so much more that each of us don't know than what we do know. You know, I don't know the, the genus of a centipede or I don't know pi past 3.14 and I could go on and on as to all those things that I don't know. But my sense of the question was something a little bit deeper, maybe something this, something that we don't know that, may impact our lives on a daily basis, something that's that maybe would help us to live our lives uh, if we knew the answer. I was thinking about just the, the objects of our experience. Phenomenologically, we, you know, we don't really know any of we don't know any of the objects of our experience. You know, we just infer it through the six senses. And perhaps it's that not knowing that 
maybe that's the ca- kind of the cause for the objectification of reality is not knowing in this constant bifurcation of the of the you know if you want if there's an ultimate reality or whatever the bifurcation of the direct experience of reality into all the myriad objects and still not being able to know any single object going to go out on a limb here and say most humans want to be safe in some degree but for me personally oh I, i'm going to go on a limb and say i think most humans want to be safe to some degree or another um, for me personally in my experience being safe often means avoiding failure and i think in that way knowing and failure are kind of linked because at least in my life, and especially in my creative life, I, I do metal sculpture, I often get locked up in the thinking process, the planning process, the I can't make a, a mistake process. Like I, I often, my creative flow slows down because I don't allow myself to make these failures. And I think that probably happens a lot in our lives where we get frozen because we don't know this, or we don't know that, or we're obsessed with trying to know enough to be safe. Um, at least in my experience, those two things are linked. I guess I, I didn't know how this question would be linked to what engaged Buddhism is all about and any... Um, so... When Patrice talked, I felt like she really reached into that part, particularly very much for me also, that I don't, I hear what's happening in the world and um, I don't know how to make a contribution. And what I further don't know is I don't know if not knowing what is contributing is even important (laughs) or would be just another abstraction by which I would be guiding action, which uh, which is not the path I want. I think each and every one of us have sort of settled down and gotten past some of this and, and picked areas where you've focused your energies and attentions and where you you have a little bit more knowledge about what you... Um, are working on and how you are making a difference in the world because of it. And um, so the other half of that, you know, not knowing what you don't know is kind of esoteric to me, Um, um, which leads me to ask, why did you ask that particular question? Could you give me a little bit more specific information about exactly what is was that you were hoping that we would learn because you asked it. I say yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one, I... I didn't have any specific outcome in mind other than hoping there would be a useful sharing and conversation. So 
for me as a facilitator, I'm just looking for a question with potential. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So I, I didn't have a real clear agenda. And I, I definitely didn't know what I wanted people to say. I have other questions, yeah. Can I make a, a comment? Um, one of the readings that was really, really helpful <clears throat> to me in my practice was um, a little essay by Tinisero called The Karma of Questions. And in that, uh, my own background is philosophy for people who don't know me. So I have a very academic Western um, kind of go for the answer at all costs. Any questions, a great question. I mean, just one of these just kind of brutalist Western philosophy backgrounds. (laughs) (laughs) I think it should be. Um, you don't and, come across as brutal. <laughs> I am so in recovery. <laughs> and this essay um, in which um, Tanisero talks about how every question is sort of the template for what an answer might be. And he talked about why the Buddha didn't answer certain sorts of questions when they'd say, you know, is it this? And he'd say, no, it's not that. Well, is it not that? No, it's not that. Well, is it, you know, um, but, you know all the sort of the, that sort of, of um, quadrant and that the Buddha often didn't answer questions because they weren't good questions. And any, um, you know, a, a question that's not um, well-formed can often just lead people off in very, um, unskillful and unhelpful directions. So that's been something that I've really taken to um, heart. And in thinking about what I know and what I don't know, I my inclination now tends to be much more pragmatic in terms of asking questions about skillful and unskillful, harmful not harmful, um, is this useful to know, not, not useful to know. I mean, I, I just find myself much less willing to put energy into, well, let's just kind of, you know, debate this for the sake of debating. It. I mean, totally not interested. And I think the Buddha just is a really great example of saying, you know, I'm just not going to answer that because it's not worth our time. Should we stick with this question or move on? And partly uh, something Steve brought up, part of the intention behind the question is a sense, not so much a clear knowing, but a sense that asking this question will help and some of you mentioned this specifically, clearing some space. So if we are going to address engaged Buddhism, that we start with some open space 
rather than all we know, much of which is bad news, especially the Patrices in the group, and I do my share of that. There's just so much bad news. Or, and then Mark just got at that at another level. Joe Marie and I face similar things with decisions at Liberation Park. Or for, for me, I make a living driving places to teach. And I believe in the teachings. Do I know this is really helping people? No, but they ask me to come back so they think it's useful. I'm hoping they're not totally confused. We'll see about common ground <laughs> for the future. But um, does what I do justify the carbon footprint, the plane travel? I don't know. I wish I could know. And like Mark, I'm trying to weigh factors not even knowing what the weights are. And so, so part of this question is to, I think it uh, connects well with Buddhist practice to kind of keep us with as close as we can get with reality rather than Krishnamurti, for example, had a critique of knowledge. And by knowledge, he meant the past, what we've known. But that doesn't mean it's useful right now. And how much we clutter what's in front of us and our participation with the past, with the known. So that was part of the intention behind the question. Not that that would, and I do have more questions. This was more step one. But I'm, I'm feeling it, it is a, an important question to open up space. And uh, last night, Mark mentioned humility, which... I think is an important piece of it. Especially if we've been trained in that brutal philosophy or to be a teacher, uh, to keep some humility. And then, but also what's coming out, the flip side of this is it's overwhelming. Wanting a clear answer, not finding it, it's very easy to shut down. So I think a de- if we were to keep exploring this question, it gets into Buddhist teachings about uncertainty. Uh, David Loy, uh, in his work, much of which is about engaged applications of Buddhism, is common human strategy is to fill the uncertain with something we pretend to know. We've got a holy book. We've got a theory, say, communism, we've, whatever. And sometimes it's just a habit of mind. It's been going, the hamster wheel spun 3,000 times. 
So we take that as knowledge. Whatever, and, and uh, so David Loy's points out that the Buddhist strategy, if we go back to core teachings, is to embrace uncertainty, to face our fears of uncertainty, to practice to be okay with not knowing. And that's a space, that's not the end, but that's a space where we can really do deep practice. So that's way in the background of this question. Exactly. The pressure to pretend we know. And so to remind, how much is it posturing in pretense rather than real knowledge? And I'm not saying I know what real knowledge is, but I can at least question and learn how to question in a way that doesn't shut us down. It keeps us open. So I see it as a skill that we can practice. You kind of addressed what I wanted to mention. It's kind of a dangerous question in a way because if we start to think about how much we don't know, um, we almost become afraid to start to act in various ways um, as um, learning about something and then you realize it didn't really work. Um, There are other ways to do this and we can get so confused by the not knowing that it can make us just almost paralyzed with not knowing. But um, you really addressed that well. Thank you. Yeah, there's a balance. And when I get to that place in my practice, I go through a checklist of what I do know. And accepting my knowledge is not complete. Mm -hmm. But like I know, if I started to berate you for that really stupid comment, you would probably not like it. I don't know that for sure. And I didn't mean it was com- stupid, but if, if I took that attitude, it would have consequences. Probably not helpful. I know that pretty well. I've, I've had direct experience on both sides of that equation. So for me, that's enough knowledge to work with. And this, that level of knowledge, I think everybody's got a fair amount of. It's not complete or whatever, but there's a lot of stuff we've learned enough. And so um, I must admit that some of this hand-wringing about um, not being able to f- figure out the needs of other people. But from my perspective, I think it's very easy to see the needs of other people. Uh, homelessness, I mean, everywhere you look, and you felt particularly deeply about what you saw, 
I think I think each and every one of us can can make a very long list of what you know what you think people need. It's that's not the problem. Identifying the needs of people, there's a million and one of them. The, the real problem is to identify the ones that make the most sense for you to expend your time and energy on, that make the best sense for you and who you are and where you are and where you work and how you live, you know, can pick the one or two that make this, you know, the best sense and not spend the next five years, you know, examining the issue. Um, I, this causes me to become very impatient and pissed again. <laughs> Now I've said that twice, but but I I really do believe that um, that it is possible to be you know fairly strategic about making those decisions about how you can. But at at the, at the same time, I I just finished saying that I don't know how to make the best use of the gifts that I've been given. Um, to solve some problems that I that I see, so I see them. Um, I I just don't always have the best um, ideas about how to best respond to them. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, your points well taken. Um, I'll agree and contrast. I hope you don't take it wrong. Um, I also spend a lot of time wondering with my limited time on this world and my limited energy and resources, how can I best do this or best do that? And, and that can be really hard. And where I'm going to contrast you slightly is, yes, homelessness is a problem, but each of those people have very different life circumstances that lead them into that scenario. So how to help them is not a one-size-fits-all. And then even further is it, is it more important to help them, or is it more important to help prevent that from happening? And there again, you see all sorts of different avenues because each person finds themselves in that position for different reasons. So uh, I don't know if that contributed anything. <laughs> I, I kind of share your impatience. Um, I think my understanding of today would be um, rather than a philosophical discussion, um, more of a practical look at what is engaged Buddhism, what can we do, what are some next steps, are there things that we can do as a community. And so I'm kind of waiting for us to get into the meat of what is next. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that we could be doing on a Sunday afternoon, and, and one of them would even be volunteering and actually literally helping people that we may be able to help on some way. So um, I'm hoping that, that the discussion will move towards some, some practical guidance. I'm, I'm fine with moving on. I, I didn't... In- expect this question would use the whole two and a half hours. I'm not sure how practical we'll get, but... 
But I do want to acknowledge part of the unknowing is something like this. I think you have a valid perspective that doesn't mean everybody sees it the same way. And that's another part of the humility. And so I, I, if we move on, and I'm, I'm ready to, to acknowledge part of engaged Buddhism is to hold a big enough container that the impatient people don't get so impatient, they're gone, because that happens. If, if we spend too much time agonizing over certain things, and yet sometimes the impatient people need to sit with their impatience a bit. And that's just two of the kinds of diversity that I've seen tear groups apart. And so there, there's some, but, act, but really my intention was use this to open up space but not make this the point of what we're doing today. I'm not sure though that my next question's gonna help. <laughs> Should we take a quick break? We've been here an hour and a half but we've only we've got less than an hour left, so fairly short break, and then come back. Uh, water's good. Thanks. I'll always, I'll never forget now the word brutal and Patrice. certain physical gestures that kind of change the attitude. I've heard about it, but I haven't. And I've got a book. It's um, from a somatic therapist who's got a Tibetan background. <coughs> she calls it Zapchen, which is a Tibetan word, but yawning, skipping, stretching. So kind of along the same lines that there are these simple things that dogs, cats, and horses do that you, I've been doing a lot of yawning. It's a great way to change your breathing. And so what does this change? Well, it was, I think it had to do with uh, uh, women or young women in settings where they were competing with young men like an answer asking questions or answering questions and and just the conditioned fear, the cultural fear that gets conditioned with women to be less assertive. 
And there's something about this that changes the kind of dynamic in your mind where mm-hmm. there's just more fearlessness right. when you do that. And energetically, part of it's fear you collapse to yeah. protect this. And it, so if it's really scary, you wouldn't be doing this. So if you open up, you... And in Qigong, some of the moves, you open your chest. So I get that part. And then this is big. So you're kind of saying, hey, no, I'm not this little violet. I'm willing to get big. Great. Maybe we should do that for the rest of the afternoon. And then go back, watch the playoffs. What she just said, but the if if we do too much of certain kind of discussion, people who want to do something now will leave because they feel this is a waste of time, and I think there's something valid in that perspective, because I've been in groups where so much time talking, talking, talking. But on the other hand, sometimes impatience blocks looking carefully enough to come up with a, a more adequate response. And so what tears the group apart is these kind of differing perspectives and tendencies. And if there's not enough space to respect both of them, that kind of thing can... And there are other dynamics, not just around how fast we're moving, but dynamics like that can pull a group apart. Of course. Good. (laughs) Or fix it. They're so sure this is what's needed and we're going to do this. And if you're not on board, what's wrong with you? And and that won't build a movement. On board. I mean, I'm speaking something I've seen in my own self when I was so sure I knew what was needed and then impatient with people who didn't see it my way. And when I'm patient, how do I treat them? And I've seen that movements don't follow when that's going on. So... That brings up a lot, and I wish I could address it all, but I'll say this. I have experience of that, and I've heard wonderful stories about it. 
including with ranchers out west. And uh, one woman I met, her ex- she works for Nature Conservancy, and because she was willing to listen and just spend time with ranchers and what they cared about, they found a not a standard Nature Conservancy agenda response, but something that worked, that Nature Conservancy got what it wanted, and the ranchers got something, and so it became something everybody did together and an example of the polarization that so often happens. And that's next on my little plan here to talk about us versus them. I don't know what it was called because I don't think she had a road map. So I just heard her tell her story and how this had happened. I don't believe she had any training in something special. She just knew how to listen. And she cared about the ranchers. That's what I remember in her story, that Nature Conservancy, uh, I don't have a lot of involvement, but they have a lot of lawyers and a lot of fundraisers. And that helps shape how they do things. And most of them aren't from rancher families. I believe this woman either was or at least got to know them. And what I remember, I don't know how it came about. It could have just been that was how she was. She cared about these people. I could find it. She's in western Colorado. So I want to bring up something. Is it Tamara? Tamara. Okay. That you brought up that I want to at least partially address or respond to is one of my takes on socially engaged Buddhism is Buddhists don't have to invent the wheel. I, this is partly having seen Buddhist groups trying to figure out the Buddhist response to something. Like take, you brought up homelessness. We don't need a Buddhist response. We just need a response that is effective. And we don't need to stick our Buddhist label on it. I see a lot of, I see a potential for wasting time trying to figure out a Buddhist response when somebody's already figured out and is doing appropriate responses. So a big part of engaged Buddhism is just helping out already existing initiatives that, as far as we can tell, are effective. So to me, that's part of my understanding of engaged Buddhism. And it's also based on having seen, and this comes to my thing about us, them, 
if we wear our Buddhist identity too strongly or any identity. And this happens when we need a Christian approach or we need a feminist approach or it's okay if we have those affiliations. But what seems to me can easily happen, we buy into it being our approach rather than the approach that serves people in need or the environment, peace, etc. So that's one piece. But I do think there are ways that as practicing meditators, practicing Buddhists, we have certain strengths to bring to the table. And part of it is asking certain questions or even this thing about not knowing. If we're in a coalition building situation to mobilize people to deal with something and we notice polarization going on or certain groups you know, somebody who's so, so sure they need, they know. Can we bring some Buddhist insight? Not that Buddhists own the insight, but if we're doing Buddhist practice, some insight about, to take the example of the, what we were just doing, some not knowing humility. For example, that's in AA, where humility is a really crucial word. So act people who want to contribute to fostering a more livable, less violent, more caring world, what can Buddhist practice, meaning not in the abstract, but our, our practices, what each of us does or what collectively happens at Cloud Mountain, how can that contribute? And there's a way, so that's kind of how I, that's part of my broad vision of engaged Buddhism, supporting good work that's already going on. We don't need to own it. Part of Buddhist practice ought to be humbly, you know, not needing to have our ego running the show. So here's something worthwhile. Can we help it? And then looking for creative ways to bring the fruits of our practice, such as a certain comfort with uncertainty, into wherever we wish to be engaged. So that's a broad response to something I heard in in your comment. We have... Would you like to discuss that? No, good point. Um, one, it doesn't have to be all that different, but if we're on some level affiliated with Buddhism, 
that can be the the Buddha's part. We show up to some extent as Buddhists, and for many of us here, that might not be a primary identity, so it doesn't have to matter much. Second, if there is some insight coming out of Buddhist practice that's relevant, that might be different. But probably never in an exclusive sense. It's not like only the Buddhas have this. Because that's a that's problematic too. Like we've got this piece, nobody else does. Yeah. And it could be others have something the same or similar, but we can say, look, this comes out of our Buddhist practice. We don't own it, but we can share what what we have to offer here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, a Zen teacher, I think she's still in Pittsburgh, but uh, she's worked as a community mediator, I believe, in Kansas. I can't remember her name, but it's easy to find. Olive Branch is a project she's doing, including in a Zen groups that have had some problem, usually around sex and power. And so there, there is, that's one example, somebody's doing something along the lines of taking work that's already done and with one's Buddhist practice, seeing where they reinforce each other, strengthen each other. think so and part of nonviolent communication is the framework is basically four questions. One of the things that strikes me is I this is not my contingent is sort of the people and um, I don't know. I would say uh, historically both in places like Thailand and here in the States there was a need to create the label socially engaged Buddhism because the main currents of Buddhism were not socially engaged except going along with status quo. I could give numerous examples from Thailand and they happen here. Here, I would say there's been and continues to be a need to shake up the Buddhists or people doing Buddhist practice that it's not just about sitting on the cushion. And my own under my own view is that American Buddhists have made such a big deal about meditation 
largely for good reasons, but an effect is what people talk about and celebrate is going on retreat, not making a better world. And the idea of making a better world is problematic. But there's, there's some issues with going on retreat, especially when most people can't. So for me, within Buddhist groups, socially engaged Buddhism is partly trying to expand the notion of what practice is. This was a big piece for Ajahn Buddhadasa that I try to carry on, that the no practice is not just meditation, although often the word practice is used as a synonym for meditation. I think that's a big obstacle not only to engage Buddhism, but just full f- what I'm thinking of as full-fledged Buddhism. And so we, some of us have been talking about the ethical aspect. What uh, a perspective from Ajahn Buddhadasa, if the goal or objective of Buddhism is liberation from suffering. And if, as Patrice just mentioned, suffering arises from craving and clinging and ignorance, in the Buddhist analysis, these are the three big causes, ignorance, craving, clinging, and those three are intertwined. If that's what's underpinning suffering, then Buddhist practice is anything that unravels and disempowers ignorance, craving, and clinging. And it wasn't clear to him that meditation was the only way to do that. And that wisely motivated, genuinely compassionate social action, which in a Buddhist term is taking responsibility for the shared home, ecology, ecosystem. Eco means home, oikos in Greek. So there's a, a this perspective is Engaged Buddhism is a deepening of practice that takes the ethical, the generosity, and service aspects of practice more seriously than the narrow focus on meditation. And that's not meant to to take away from the meditation piece, it's more if, if our understanding of practice expands, and that's kind of intimidating because people then start thinking, but it's so hard to just get up and meditate, and now you're saying I need to blah, blah, blah. 
So then we got to work our way through that morass. But part of engaged Buddhism, I see as an opening and deepening of Buddhist practice to be a more fully alive practice. And I think that's a big need within Buddhist sanghas, communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like an activist might go off for, you know, some people go off and do a specialized training or a, a master's to pick up what they discern is needed. And I think uh, if we go back to some people here emphasize the pragmatism of the Buddha, I, th- I think that's important that at each of our, a compassionate response rather than dogmatic or ideological is, you know, you're the one who's got to know what you need to do and that we respect that and encourage you to do what you need to do. If you come to me as a student, there would be questions I would probe into what's, you know, what's your real intention? Is it the intention we state, or is there something else going on? And if we we have a meditation practice, hopefully we'll we'll be able to notice. Because in the past, I thought that I thought I knew what I was supposed to do. And, you know, all the actors out there, I think, all the young, angry, right. And maybe you knew pieces, though. This is where Buddha's middle way. Don't blow off what you used to know, but maybe a bigger perspective is needed rather than those violent swings which are such a part of our culture. Really? Depends on your hospice. My wife's a hospice nurse, and that field keeps changing basically financial stuff. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's. I'm, This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.